So we're hanging out in the Gospel of Luke. This is study number four that we're looking at tonight. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is just look at some of the themes that are found in the Gospel of Luke. And tonight, what we're going to talk about is the Holy Spirit. That's a prominent topic, not only in Luke's Gospel, but also in the book of Acts, the second volume that is attributed to Luke. And so tonight, what I want to do is just uh, tell you what's happening in the book a little bit, and then we're going to look at a few passages in the Gospel of Luke. This section, right after the genealogy temptation of Jesus um, that is found in chapter four, then begins a new section. And the new section in the Gospel uh, that is built upon the birth narratives in chapters one and two, and then Jesus being led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for temptation, the section from chapter four, 16 through 950, are a lot of vignettes. And they are primarily geographical in nature. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. If you have a Bible and you turn open to the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see how Luke kind of organizes this section before he gets to chapter 9, verse 51, where it says he resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem. But you'll notice in verse 16 of chapter 4, he went to Nazareth. And then if you look at verse 31, uh, chapter 4, it says he went to Capernaum. Chapter 5, verse 1, uh, they went to the lake called Gennesaret. Those are the type of uh, things that you see in this section. So it's very episodic. Uh, it is built around where Jesus is moving and doing ministry. And then the concentration of, of references to the Holy Spirit is in this section that we find between chapters 1 and chapter nine, really the reference to the Holy Spirit doesn't make its way into the latter part of the Gospel of Luke. But boy, by the time you pick up in the book of Acts, it's all over the place. The topic is readdressed and much more frequently than you find in the Gospel of Luke. So the Holy Spirit is always a mysterious type of topic. I think all of us kind of can get a handle on God, the Father, the Creator, the Spirit, uh, then the Lord Jesus, Son of God. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's kind of hard to know what we're talking about. Maybe we're not as familiar with it. I think maybe because of our background a little bit, if uh, there are those of us that have been brought up in Protestant circles other than charismatic or Pentecostal, there's not much of a concentration that's given to the Holy Spirit. Much more concentration is given to Jesus and in reference to Jesus, uh, God the Father. But you'll find as Jesus begins his ministry, this becomes a prominent display of how he does many of his miracles. And so if you're in chapter four, I want you to notice that Jesus will uh, take this idea of the Spirit and he will apply it to himself. Look at verse 18. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And that becomes the dominant idea in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit is the energizing force that allowed Jesus to proclaim the good news, to perform his miracles. And for those who are his representatives, uh, those are individuals that are filled with the Spirit so that they can speak out on behalf of Christ's kingdom that he inaugurated. So this idea of Jesus attributing that this passage out of Isaiah 61 to himself is stated down in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this anticipation of this spirit 
is one that is applied to Jesus, and he claims that this is happening because of the spirit that has anointed him. Now, I want you to notice in chapter three that this is built upon the completion of John the Baptist's work. If you are in chapter three, I want you to come down to uh, verse 15. This is John the Baptist. And of course, he was a very demonstrative individual as he as he prepared the way for the coming Messiah. And he was quite confrontational, too, which is interesting. He, it will eventually get him killed. But what we find is in verse 15 of chapter 3, it says, The people were waiting expectantly and wonder, all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then here's the key phrase. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Then it says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and he preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, so Herod takes his brother's wife, uh, and John confronts him on it, all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And that's almost like a period in the ministry of John the Baptist. From here on out, after he is proclaimed, there's one that is coming, that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with fire. He is kind of pushed to the side for a moment until while he's in prison, we're told in the Gospels, he, he calls upon Jesus uh, to clearly tell him if he is the one that they had been waiting for, because here he is in prison, and he's full of doubts about that. And then he is beheaded, uh, and that's the end of John the Baptist. But what we find is this empowering of the Spirit uh, divides into two observable groups of people in the Gospel of Luke, those who recognize that God is at work in Jesus and those who refuse to see it. And what we find is that this uh, becomes a quite uh, dramatic thing for those who are pressing against it. Both Luke and the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11, in both uh, Gospels, chapter 11, it, those who are the religious leaders are observing the work of Christ through the power of the Spirit, and they attribute all the miracles that he is doing to the power of Beelzebub, which is a, a demonic force, uh, or the power of Satan. It's interesting that Matthew, Luke doesn't do it in chapter 11, but Matthew does. And he says, this is the unpardonable sin. Um, it is observing the work of Christ done by the power of the Spirit and giving reference not to the Spirit, but to Satan. And he is doing these things by this evil power. I've had a lot of people over the course of my ministry who get very fearful about whether they could commit the unpardonable sin. That's the way it's phrased in Matthew's gospel. And if you look at the context, both of Luke 11 and Matthew 11, what you're going to find is the reference is to his physical presence, number one, his earthly ministry in terms of miracles, number two, observing both those things and saying, no, that's not the work of God. That is the work of Satan. People uh, post-earthly uh, ministry of Jesus have no way of committing that particular sin. Uh, they are in the presence of Christ and yet refuse. The unpardonable sin has nothing to do with hell. It has to do with coming judgment on that generation 
and it has the idea that uh, because they have not seen and acknowledged the coming of God in the presence of Jesus, therefore God's going to let circumstances develop the way they're going to develop, and eventually that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And I believe that's the consequences of the unpardonable sin. Not doesn't have something to do about the afterlife. But it is something that's interesting because it's related again to this topic of the Holy Spirit. So let me stop there and see if you have some questions or comments. Uh, that's always an intriguing subject, the unpardonable sin. But I think it's something that is very specific and it's not something people need to be wringing their hands about. So, Larry, you're talking about grieving the Holy Spirit? Uh, that's a different way of phrasing it. Okay, uh, that's what I was thinking. <clears throat> grieving the Holy Spirit is something that all of us can do when we feel prompted oh. and led and, and, and we push that aside. This is a historical sin uh, that has to do with the earthly ministry of Christ and the religious leaders primarily who seek Christ doing these physical miracles, and they say he's not doing it by the power of God. He's doing it by the power of Satan. So I think it's a very specific historical thing that's going on. And if you wanted to read about that, it's in chapter 11 of Luke and in chapter 11 of Matthew. Um, what you're referencing is also found in the uh, epistles, uh, as well. It's the idea of either being filled with the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes reference to those things uh, as well. So does that make sense? Yeah, but I thought they said, I remember, I don't know where it is, but I thought they said, if you grieve the Holy Spirit, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Paraphrase by Shelley. <laughs> Well, it's the idea of of cutting your uh, your power source to be able to produce the fruit of the spirit. I think that's the idea behind it. Okay. Okay. It's the idea of the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self control. I might have missed one in there, but um, uh, it's the idea that these are the qualities that the spirit produces in the life of individuals who want to follow Christ. Grieving the spirit is, I know I should do these things, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay. Okay. So. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right. Any other questions or comments? I was going to say, um, being raised Catholic, you have different levels of sin, and there's such a thing as a mortal sin. Mm -hmm. Do you are never quite sure that if you're forgiven, it's always kind of, was that, you know, so bad that you're in this category? So some, I don't think are forgiven. Um, that's, that is not built out of the scriptures. No, I don't think so. Um, that is kind of built on a, on church tradition. Yeah. On tradition. Um, that my, this is my personal opinion. I think that keeps people dependent upon the Roman Catholic hierarchy uh, to be able to say, well, you need to come to confession. You need to do this and that and the other thing. And um, my that's just my opinion. I think it's a unique theological slant. That's not I don't think you can you can get to that looking at the scriptures, but looking at some of the papal uh, traditions. I think it was a way uh, to keep people fearful because people can be uh, more dependent upon the leadership of the Catholic Church, in particular, when they are always fearful. And um, that's really true on any level in society. Uh, anytime we have fear, we can be easily manipulated. And... Um, I think that's what's happening here. Is that's, this where the um, unpardonable sin is? Yeah, okay. What Esty's talking about, she turned open to uh, chapter 12. 12. Okay. 
chapter 12, not 11, I mentioned before. Uh, here's what it says. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then it goes on and it says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, so it's religious people that are trying to control the masses, do not worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time. So, Esty, that is, um, that's not the reference. The, the Jesus and Beelzebub is uh, in chapter 11. But that's a great verse that you found here in chapter 12 of Luke. So if you turn back a chapter, you'll find what I was referencing to here. So, okay, any other questions on that? All right, so let's move ahead here. Luke loves the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So if you look on this slide, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is mentioned about 15 times in the Gospel of Luke. But notice how that multiplies in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, over 55 times the person and work of the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Now, in theology, um, this topic is called pneumatology. If you, you can see in the English word pneumatology, the word pneumatic, which is related to air. And that is the idea of this wind, this presence, this um, energy is uh, what is driving the work of God on earth. So the purpose of the spirit, as it is envisioned both in the gospel and in Acts, is really the idea of how does the ministry of Jesus continue on after he has ascended to the Father and he's no longer on earth? So John makes a big deal about this in his gospel as well. In fact, he, de he devotes uh, like four chapters uh, to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the idea is the Holy Spirit is the proxy presence of Jesus on earth while he's no longer on earth. And it's uh, he's the one that enables the believers to do the post-Pentecost work after they've received the Spirit. And that involves an, a lot of different things, teaching, leading, validating, empowering, and that type of thing. So in your handout, and you know what? I need to make a disclaimer here again. When I put these slides together, I can do it a lot faster when I use a microphone and speak it rather than trying to type it. So there are things in your handout that if I was typing it, um, I would use better punctuation there. Uh, and so, so there are some some typos there. That, uh, but, you know, don't let it bother you. It's because it's the way I can get it done on time. So anyways. Having said that, I put two charts in your handout this week. Now, here's the references in the Gospel of Luke. And you can see it's all primarily up front. The majority of them are in the first four chapters. There is a reference in chapter 10 and in chapter 12. Different people are the object of the Spirit uh, filling them, including John the Baptist, Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon. These are all the birth narrative references here. And they all serve kind of a different uh, purpose. Uh, John the Baptist is preparing the way of Jesus. Of course, Mary is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, um, the idea of Elizabeth announcing when Mary visits her that uh, the child in her womb is uh, is is called by God to uh, be the presence of God on earth. Zechariah prophesying over Simeon, prophesying over uh, the work of Jesus. 
And then in the next three references, you have the focus of Jesus. So he's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. At various points here in the synagogue passage, he will stand up to preach and he will say that the spirit is upon me. This is being fulfilled in your hearing. And here's an interesting one in chapter 10, uh, verse 21. I want to read that one to you. Um, as he continues his public ministry, it's fascinating that the reference in chapter 10 is again back to the spirit. And here's what it says. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, but you've revealed them to little children. Now, this is on the heels of uh, chapter 10, after he has sent the 72 out uh, to proclaim the, the good news and to do the works of the kingdom. So he's full of joy by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in chapter 12, I'm right here in chapter 10, I'll read chapter 12, verse 12. It uh, says that the uh, uh, disciples are to carry out the work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Here's what it says in Luke 12, 11. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And that's the same reference SD just referenced a moment ago. Okay, so here you can see dominant topic but it's uh, loaded up front in the gospel. And then it is teased out a couple of times later. In contrast to that, chart number two, when you do a comparison of the gospel of John and the book of Acts, notice the numerous references that you find in here. And it seems as though that one of the things that both John and Luke have in common is the description of the Holy Spirit, uh, his work as the paraclete, one called alongside to help. That's what the word paraclete means. That the Spirit uh, validates the testimony of those uh, who are proclaiming the good news, empowering them, and ultimately giving birth uh, to the church. Um, after the ascension of Christ, right up here in Acts 2, 33, you uh, move into uh, the uh, Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit comes upon those that are present there. That is promised in John 14, 15, 16 are the primary chapters. And Jesus tells his disciples um after I go, I will send you another helper. And it's this idea, paraclete, again, in the Greek language, one called alongside to help. So you can see it's a dominant topic in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Um, our concern tonight is primarily about the Gospel of Luke. But we will reference to the fact, since this is uh, volume two of Luke's work, the book of Acts, uh, how what he states in Luke is a setup in many respects for what will be continuing to car be carried out in the book of Acts. So do you have any comments or questions on these couple of charts that you see before you? So go back in your Bible now to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. And it is here that we will see um, the idea of Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit. So if you come down to verse 21, this is the baptism account. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, he receives the Spirit, 
as he comes up out of the water after being baptized by John. And the spirit is visualized like a dove. This imagery here is fascinating. Um, I think when it says like a dove, it might not be a dove, but it might be something similar, whatever that may be. Remember on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, chapter two, it's as if there were flames of fire that came down upon the heads of those present uh, that received the Holy Spirit. So it's fascinating that the translation says like a dove. But what's important to see here is this individual is receiving something that it appears that he did not have before. Now, this will be mysterious to us because when we think of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we think of them as united for all of eternity. And yet at the same time, it's fascinating here that at least in his humanity, at least for public observation, it is this idea of the spirit descending on him like a dove has a, a starting point. And this starting point is what compels him into public ministry. And um, it, we can't really say whether Jesus had the spirit prior to this or not. Remember, he's an adult man at this point, being baptized. So we're not told much about his boyhood. We're not told uh, a whole lot about uh, the things that he did as a child. All we know is that one time he was in the temple and um, they were in Jerusalem for a feast and he stayed behind to converse with the rabbis and scholars and his parents came back looking for him. And he said uh, to them, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? Um, but other than that, we're not given much of a spotlight on the boyhood or teenage years of Jesus. So here he is around the age of 33-ish or so uh, that the spirit comes upon him. And then that's what compels him into his earthly ministry. So I think probably the reason this appears the way that it does is not to diminish anything about the deity of Christ, but to remind us that as a human being, he is one that identifies us in all with us in all things. And there was a point for him to do ministry effectively where the spirit needed to empower him. Does that make sense? And I think that in the book of Acts, that idea continues where the most effective ministry that was going on in the early days was done through the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling people to proclaim the good news. Thoughts, questions? Um, question. Um, I was always under the impression that the Holy Spirit is not is silent or not present all the way up until he descends on Jesus and then at Pentecost that he he ascend to the earth and there is no no reference or no mention of the Holy Spirit up until that point that's a great segue into the next couple slides because the spirit is present in the Old Testament. Um, and is the spirit not present, present with the disciples until Jesus is taken away? Well, it's the idea that there's a transition that's taking place from Jesus' earthly ministry being present bo uh, bodily with the disciples to them carrying on his work without him being present. And that's why he says in John... I will leave you another helper. And it's the idea um, of another helper of the same kind, one who will help you continue to carry out what but we've there, started. Until he was gone, then the disciples didn't have the Holy Spirit. 
that seems to be a very distinctive thing in the book of Acts. Whether this is something that is very specific to the early church, that it almost seems as though the Spirit is given intentionally at moments in time to substantiate that this is God's new work in the world, not only through the disciples, but others who received the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, they exhibited that through the speaking of tongues. What about the Old Testament? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, I think there is a corollary in the Old Testament to uh, the idea of the Spirit in the New. But well, let's hang on till we get to the next slide or so. Other questions? Well, Larry, if Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit till the dove descended on him. I always looked at the dove descending as an affirmation for people looking on that mm -hmm. this was God's son. But right before John baptizes him, John doesn't John say to Jesus that you should be baptizing me? And yes, Jesus answers him, well, this is the way it needs to be for now. Yes, John did say, I, you should be baptizing me because he recognized. Now, remember, I think John the Baptist had probably some, I don't know, some idea that Jesus is the Messiah long before, you know, he went out in camel hair and ate locusts and began calling people for repentance and and the baptism represents those who wanted to repent. They were relatives. And I think from the time of both of their births, the families had some sense of anticipation. But because that's what they were told in those birth narratives, that, mm -hmm. that these boys will you know be for the rising and falling of many and it's kind of the idea that they're biding their time almost until this moment in time where john uh baptizes jesus and it's almost as if the starting gun goes off and it's there that he begins his public ministry now yeah. The idea of the Spirit of God being with us, I'll, I'll show you in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God leaves a human body, they no longer exist. It's, it's almost as if the Spirit of God is what enables us to live. But this uh, is the idea of not just God's Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, this specific reference to a person that mm -hmm. carries out a work specifically among his people. Because in the epistles, which we're not going to get to tonight at all, it talks about the gifts of the Spirit. You know, I'm, I'm sure yeah. all of us have heard, you know, the various gifts of the Holy Spirit and all that type of thing. But here, what I think is happening primarily relates to the humanity of Jesus. And that is the Holy Spirit is enabling him to carry out his earthly ministry of preaching, teaching, and healing, and so forth. And there's an interesting, do you see this cross-reference here, John 132? It it says here in John 132, this is there, this is fascinating. This is the same idea of the baptism of Jesus. It says, John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove, as a dove, whereas Luke says, like a dove, and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down, and now listen, and remain, is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Luke doesn't concentrate that on that, but John does. The Spirit will come down and remain 
on this man. So it's almost as if, okay, this is starting something, but it's not going to end. The spirit is going to enable him throughout the course of his life. All right. Other questions? Comments? Now, what I think this is all leading to is the idea of the inauguration of a new age, an age that includes both Jew and Gentile and the indwelling of the spirit in the lives of those who have received uh, uh, Christ. Now, this is not really highlighted as much in Luke's gospel as it is in the book of Acts. Because when you come to the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, what you have uh, is this idea that this is fulfillment of what Joel anticipated, the prophet Joel, all the way back in chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. John the Baptist is summarizing, I think, the hope of a new era where this one who has been spiritually anointed who is the Christ, uh, is the one that is ushering in a new age. And so when Jesus receives the Spirit, uh, it is one of, uh, of the divine endorsements that Jesus receives uh, to um, that God is with him, uh, listen to him, follow him. But what's fascinating is that ministry is not for Jesus only. In the book of Acts, it's expanded to the community, uh, the early church, uh, for a variety of different functions. Uh, most of them are really related, I think, to the proclamation of the gospel, because that's what the book of Acts is primarily chronicling for us, is the movement of the church into various parts around the world. But I think it's saying, okay, God is up to something new, and as he is doing this new thing, Jesus is the one that initiates it through his earthly ministry, but now the baton has been handed to those uh, who follow him, and they have been given the same resource of the Holy Spirit to carry it out. All right? So what's fascinating in the book of Acts is this idea of the uh, Holy Spirit is more of a corporate concept than an individual concept. In Luke, it's focused on individuals, John the Baptist, Mary, Elizabeth, Simeon, uh, specific individuals. But by the time you get to the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost, there is this idea of this collective community that is going to carry out the work. Now, go all the way to the end of Luke, chapter 24, for a moment. And when you get to Luke chapter 24, it's interesting here uh, that the idea of the Holy Spirit carrying out this work in the lives of those who are following is where Luke finishes his gospel and then he picks it right back up in the first chapter of Acts. So take a look. Uh, let's come down to verse uh, 46. Jesus is telling uh, his disciples, this is what is writ written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. That There's the inauguration of a new age to all nations, not to, just to Jews, beginning at Jerusalem. Then it says, you are my witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So, here doesn't name the Holy Spirit, but that's what he's referring to. Because if you go over to uh, Acts chapter one, this is 
how he picks up. He begins Acts 1 the same way he begins the book of Luke. And then in verse 4, it says, on one occasion, while he was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the end of Luke is referencing the same thing, but here it's named in Acts chapter 1. The rest of the book of Acts then continues to show how this isn't just a Jewish promise. It's also something that's bestowed upon Gentiles as well. And you can see in chapter 10 uh, and following in the book of Acts, there are many Gentiles that receive the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they know about it. Sometimes they don't know about this idea. It, what's fascinating is those who were disciples of of John the Baptist didn't know about it. And I'm going to read you this because this is fascinating. In chapter 19 of Acts, um, Paul is in Ephesus and there is um, there is this dialogue that's going on. Verse one says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So it's a separate, at least in Acts, it's a separate entity. You believed and then you received. They answer, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. So they were baptized by John the Baptist. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were 12 men in all. So this is just uh, fascinating. You have Jesus' disciples, 12 uh, in total, that carry out this work in the book of Acts. Then Paul leads uh, the, the church into a, a very aggressive, hostile area in Ephesus. And there's some people that had been baptized by John's baptism, but they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And so Paul uh, places his hands on them. And it's almost as if they're playing catch up here, that they believed, uh, but now the Holy Spirit coming upon them is a secondary experience. And um, so it's very transitional in the book of Acts. And I think one of the things that we're finding is a movement away from the Spirit as it related to creation up until the time of Jesus. And then now this new age is beginning and there is a corporate concept that's beginning to take place. Uh, the church is going to be the bearer of the Holy Spirit uh, as they carry out their ministry. So some thoughts there? So I have another chart for you here. Now, this is going back to what Esty was commenting about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, because the Old and the New Testament are written in different languages, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, New Testament is in Greek, there's two different words that are used and translated for spirit. So in the Old Testament, it is the word ruach, and in the New Testament, it is the word pneuma. Again, here's this idea, uh, pneumatics, uh, that the English word uh, breath or air. Now, in the Old Testament, the spirit is said to shape creation, animate animals and a uh, mankind, reveal God's messages to his prophets, his spokesmen. Um, the spirit helps to elicit faith, repentance, praise, and prayer, equips some people for leadership. And even when we were studying the book of Exodus a while back, uh, 
when they were uh, picking out people to build the tabernacle, they looked for people upon whom the spirit was resting, that they were able to do this type of creative, creative work. You come into the New Testament, it's the same spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Now he is guiding um, teachers and he's directing. He can be oppressed or blasphemed in those two passages in Matthew and in Luke. He can reveal the reality of Christ, can unite uh, believers to Christ through our salvation experience. Um, it's the Holy Spirit that can assure us of our standing before God. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to transform, uh, to become more like Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us spiritual gifts to be able to serve. And it's the Holy Spirit that prompts a lot of the missionary activity uh, to go forth into all the world and proclaim the good news. So there, the emphasis is a little bit different between Old and New Testament, but it's the same spirit. The biggest difference, I think, is in, and this is where I think you were going with this, Esty, um, it seems as though in the Old Testament, the spirit comes upon people, but after the work of Christ is done, he indwells people. That this comes from the inside out rather than from the top down. So I think this, this idea of the spirit is there. It's just not, it's not functioning quite the same way between the Old and the New Testament. Does that help at all? Mm -hmm. Kind of a new a new way of relating. So here's, when you do look in the Old Testament, it's a topic that appears quite often. In fact, uh, over 400 times, uh, this idea of the spirit of God somehow cooperates with the spirit of humanity. But what's fascinating in the Old Testament, the word holy is not connected to the spirit, but rather the spirit can also be a word that is used for even evil, oppressive type spirits. Remember Saul, when he was going crazy in the Old Testament, it is said that there was a spirit that was constantly keeping him agitated. Um, well, it's the same word, ruach. Uh, so it, it, it's not specifically related necessarily to God's spirit only. It can be the idea of any type of force uh, that has some type of an effect upon another person. Now, what's fascinating here is this word ruach is, is found in the very start of the Bible. In fact, the very first chapter of Genesis, the idea of the ruach of God is found when it says this, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the Spirit is there. It's doing some creative work. Um, it, it will continue to empower and lead people uh, throughout the narratives of the Old Testament. Um, Here's another fascinating one. In the um, book of Psalms, number 104, the psalmist begins by talking about the greatness of God, how he wraps himself in light, and it's a long psalm. But if you look at Psalm 104, verse 30, as most of this is related, this psalm, to creation. He talks about the animal world. He talks about the creatures and all this type of thing. And in verse 30, it says this, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. In other words, the spirit was involved in creation and this vibration hovering over the waters um, and stirring it and whatever that means to the writer of Genesis, uh, or even the tradition of the Torah, is that the Spirit of God is doing 
things that has effects. And that's what Psalm 104 is all about. The effects brings about the creation as we know it and the creatures that we observe within creation. But verse 30, you send your spirit and that's what causes the creation and it renews the face of the earth. How does it renew the face of the earth? Somehow God's spirit is an ongoing work through the continual generation of animals and human beings that continue to fill the earth. Thoughts? Now, the reason I tell you that out of the Old Testament is because the dynamic of this spirit becomes much more focused when you enter into the Gospel of Luke. Now, we're all familiar with the idea of God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Well, when, when God is not breathing life into a human being, book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, says the absence of Ruach will lead to death, but the presence of Ruach is the power to live. So in the Old Testament, it's almost as if our very lives are sustained in some capacity by the Spirit of God. And when that Spirit is, is gone, we're gone as well. I don't know how all that works, but that's at least the, the idea that Genesis all the way and referenced in Psalm 104 and in Ecclesiastes 12. Seven seems to be suggesting. Any thoughts there? Now that leads us here to what the Old Testament people that had the Spirit come upon them, for what reason? And this relates to Luke and it relates to Act Acts. It's for the prophetic power that they have to proclaim the work of God's presence on earth. And probably the most dramatic of this example from the Old Testament is in the book of Ezekiel. And it's the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And this vision of everything being lifeless until the Spirit of God sweeps across and brings this back to life, um, it lies dead. So the power of the Spirit has three prophetic books in the Old Testament that highlights it, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel. It's Joel that is referenced in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel was uh, referring to. So that's a little bit of background from the Old Testament idea. That brings us to the New Testament. So when you move into the New Testament, what you have is the Holy Spirit becomes better defined, I think. And as his ministry never leaves Jesus, it's the dynamic of the presence of God through the Spirit of God that enables him to go forth in the work that he was doing on earth. Now, when he's leaving the earth, because that's kind of where the book of Luke ends. Just hang out. The Spirit is coming. It's better defined for us in the Gospel of John. After the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the disciples, it tells us in the Gospel of John that he breathed on them. There's that idea of breath again. And they, they received the Holy Spirit. So this becomes very demonstrative in John's gospel that they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And then what we'll find is that after that, they are told to hang out in Jerusalem because it, the Holy Spirit is going to come on the day of Pentecost. Now, what is Pentecost? In the Old Testament, that is the time that the law was given and um, on Mount Sinai. And what you find here is that continual um, celebration of Pentecost anticipated the giving of God's law to his people. Um, 
So I'm referring, if you want to jot down this reference, to John chapter 20, when it says in verse uh, 19 and following, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, be, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So he's commissioning them to go forth. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Well, we're not going to get into that because that's a sticky wicket, uh, you know, about that. But all I wanted to say tonight is this transmission of the Holy Spirit is to enable them to carry on the earthly ministry in the absence of Jesus on earth. Thoughts, comments, questions? Now, I think that Jesus was had the same power to do miracles before the Holy Spirit descended on him, if he was God himself. Mm-hmm. It's not like he was not capable of doing any of that until the Holy Spirit descended on. And I kind of like what uh, Shelley said, that it was demonstration to people watching that, yeah, this is endorsement. Yes, there's definitely a confirmation that's going on there. The way I think of it is that the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Remember, we're dealing with the God-man here, divinity and humanity. Somehow he is fully human. Even though he's fully God, he's fully human. And I think this giving of the Spirit relates to the human side of Jesus. And I do think it has this authenticating effect upon those that saw him. But it Luke makes a big deal about the Holy Spirit as a distinctive moment in his life came upon him. That's, that's the only, that's the, the primary thing I'm trying to emphasize. Doesn't mean he didn't have powers before. And if you believe, gosh, some of the Gnostic gospels, uh, the Gnostic gospels suggest that he did some miracles even as, as a, a child. child, but you know, Church tradition tends to reject those Gnostic Gospels, but that is something that is mentioned in there. Other thoughts? Okay, we've got a few more slides and we'll be done. So when you get to the book of Acts, to build upon what Luke has established in his Gospel, it seems as though the Spirit's primary activity is to fill people. Uh, the verb in Greek is uh, um which means to fill, to fill up, like you fill a glass with a drink. And that seems to be happening in the Gospel of Luke. You know, the people we've mentioned before, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Mary, uh, Jesus himself, are all filled uh, at points in time in the Gospel of Luke, and then you see the same thing happening in Acts chapter 2, where all the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and as you follow the, the, as you trace the trail in the book of Acts, that's what's enabling them to testify about Jesus in these various places um, uh, that Paul and others carry the Gospel to. It's also fascinating in the book of Acts that there's the mention of Stephen when he is being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, that he was filled with the Spirit at the time that he sees the vision of the Son of God. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a big topic in the book of Acts, and it can go in a few different directions. But it is kind of completing the picture of what is introduced in the Gospel of Luke. 
All right, so one more and then we'll be done here with the slides. So the, the phrase filled with the spirit is something that has the idea of enablement. It has the idea both on individuals and corporately, the people of God, to be enabled to be bold in their uh, testimony about Jesus. Uh, it's the idea of the effectiveness of the early church was because of the spirit that was given. Um, what I think that is happening in the book of Acts continues on with some complexity, and that is, how is the Spirit continuing to fill people today, both individually and corporately? And I guess you have to dip your toes into the epistles to get that understanding, the idea of spiritual gifts and the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Um, the most notable way of seeing whether the Spirit of God is being involved in something is whether it's producing things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And um, if we see those things happening, we can be assured that that empowerment is from the Holy Spirit. Where there's hate and division and jealousy and gossip and all kinds of other things, there is the grieving of the Holy Spirit that Paul will make reference to. So I didn't put this down in the notes, so I'm going to stop the share here, but I am going to look at one more passage. Galatians chapter 5, okay? Now, this is not Luke's writings, but it's the same topic. So you come Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you're going to get to the book of Galatians. And when you get to Galatians, you'll come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, this, this is what Paul says, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. There's a big difference. You're not living by rules. You're living by this relationship. Then he names these things. The acts of the sinful nature or the grieving of the Spirit is things like sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Bits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Okay, then he contrasts, but, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, as I mentioned just a moment ago, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking, one and envying each other. And there's the key in Paul's writings that I don't think we see as much in the Gospel of Luke. How do you keep in step with the Spirit? How is it that you are walking arm in arm with where the Spirit is trying to lead? And that might have something to do with spiritual practices, whether prayer or meditation or scripture reading or fellowship or a variety of different things. But it seems as though the way Paul kind of puts a bow on this topic is to suggest each day we make choices, whether we're going to follow our own path or if we're going to keep in step with the Spirit. And if we keep in step with the spirit that indwells us, it'll lead to these uh, particular uh, results, love, joy, and peace, and patience, and so forth. So, all right. What are your thoughts? Any other thoughts or questions? So Luke, as I mentioned, he introduces the topic in the gospel, 
He's much more proficient with it in the book of Acts. Anything? Yeah, Brenda? No, go ahead. Your uh, microphone is muted. That's why I didn't hear you. I, let me see here. Yeah, you're muted. So, uh, <laughs> I see you, but but I'm not going to hear you because that there's a there's a line through. There you go. There it is. That's it. Up oh, went back. Oops. We'll let her figure that out. Anybody else have any other comments right now? Okay, Brenda, now you're on. You're hot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, I, I like the Galatians. It kind of ties it all in a bow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes a little more sense. Well, it's one of those topics that is kind of progressive in its unfolding in the scripture, you mm -hmm. know? Not all the information is dropped at one time, for sure. Other it's all about choices. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have some thoughts? Now, we didn't touch upon this because it's not in the Gospel of Luke. But when you get into the book of Acts, then you have to wrestle with things like speaking in tongues and all that type of stuff that's there. But that, that takes us down a kind of a different rabbit trail for tonight, but anything else tonight that you you have on your mind? If not, what I, my plan is in Luke over the next uh, two or three more weeks um, is just touch upon a couple of other things that Luke really emphasizes in his gospel. So it um, so this is your last chance for anything about the Holy Spirit because we're going to move on to a different theme. Okay. All righty. Well, I, if I don't see you uh, this weekend, um, which I won't some of you because you're <laughs> out of town, I hope you have a great Easter and you too. Use upon too. each of Happy you. Okay? <laughs> okay. Take care. Good night. Bye. 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 Bye.